This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I am a host for the New Books in Japanese Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'm going to be talking with Winifred Bird about her book, Eating Wild Japan. Tracking the Culture of Foraged Foods with a Guide to Plants and Recipes. Uh, This is more than a look at the the culture and the meanings of foraging in Japan, though it's certainly that. Uh, And it does uh, include an eclectic collection of recipes, a guide for foragers. Um, But at its heart, this is uh, a record of the author's encounters with uh, some quirky people, uh, including a caldera dweller, a bear hunter, and a, a seaweed scientist in some surprising places from snowy northern mountains to quiet Kyoto streets um, around food. Uh, And it's animated by uh, Bird's obvious effusive love of food, of travel, of people, of the environment. Uh, The author begins by observing that for many people in contemporary Japan, uh, wild forage is as much about the pleasure of picking and the incidental beauty as it is about anything as practical as nutritional content but also uh, points out that this attitude is very much the product of particular historical and economic circumstances. Her sensitivity to this issue is foregrounded in chapters two and three, uh, which are on horse chestnuts and bracken, respectively. Bird's background as an environmental journalist is noticeable uh, in particular, I think, in her final chapter on wild seaweeds uh, and the costs and benefits of aquaculture. Though as the full title, Eating Wild Japan, indicates, uh, this is a book you know, that's based on fieldwork firmly rooted in Japan. Uh, it will appeal to foodies and travel-starved East Asia neophytes, uh, as well as veterans and scholars of Japan. All right, so thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, and I wanted to ask you right away uh, what... First of all, uh, is it okay to call you Winnie? I know I should say for the audience that we we know each other uh, IRL. Um, Yeah, please call me Winnie. Nobody calls me Winifred except one or two family members. So, right. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure, uh, especially because Winifred is uh, necessary to, to Google the book information. So we'll, we'll get that out there. But um, I wanted to ask you right away, you know, how you became interested in uh, this project. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, and let's see, well, I, I lived in Japan for almost 10 years. Um most of it in rural Japan, um, so partly in Mie Prefecture and then later in Nagano Prefecture. Um, and I've always loved gardening. Um, I had a small farm there in Japan. I spent a lot of time um, with other farmers and people in the neighborhood who, um, you know, grew their own food and also harvested, picked food, wild foods. So I started to become familiar with Japan's just wonderful, um, extensive culture and cuisine centered around um, edible wild plants while I was living there. Um, And then in 
2014, I moved back to the United States um, and I was kind of digesting my experience in Japan. Um, I had worked... No, no pun intended, I guess. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Can't help myself. Um, so I had worked there as an environmental journalist. Um, I had done a fair amount of writing about agriculture and rural communities. Um, so I had a lot of questions running through my head about um, how food culture kind of shapes people's relationships to nature. And um, when I got back, uh, I guess I was trying to find a way to um, express that experience, share some of that experience. And one night I was laying in bed and I just thought to myself, oh, I have to write this book about, you know, the culture of foraging in Japan and what it means to <laughs> Japanese people to pick, um, you know, wild plants and eat them and what that has meant throughout history. I try to figure that out somehow. I got out of bed. I basically outlined the whole book right then and there, um, you know, not down <laughs> to all the details, but it kind of just felt like... Um, the book I had to write at that moment um, to kind of look back on my experience in rural Japan. Yeah, and I want to—I uh, guess I should uh, say for for you and for for our audience that uh, I, I deeply resent this because this is a book project that I've thought about so many times over the years. I had a sort of similar experience, um, and I just—I guess—I guess you're just better at this than I am because I never got around to jumping out of bed in the middle of the night and actually outlining the book. Uh, but I'm, I'm super excited that somebody finally did this because I, you know, I had kind of um, a similar feeling that this is, uh, you know, having lived in in you know, sort of rural area of Japan uh, for, for quite some time. Um, I used to go, you know, picking, you know, sort of wild, you know, picking wild stuff, foraging um, quite a lot, uh, especially uh, right after my son was born. It was a great way to just sort of get outside and, you know, take the baby and go walking around in the woods. And um, mm -hmm. and yeah, you realize that there's there's so much more to it, right? Um, and it's, it really is, uh, you know, something um, that's, deep and meaningful and pleasurable. And, and this is something that you talk about uh, quite a bit in your introduction. Um, you talk about the, the meanings and the uses of wild foods. Um, and I, you know, I really related to your observation in the introduction that for a lot of people, wild forage is, uh, and I just want to quote you here, um, it's as much about, quote, the pleasure of picking and the incidental beauty as it is about anything as practical as nutritional content. Um, and you also point out, and I thought this was, you know, given what you said about um, your sort of interest as an environmental journalist and thinking about the relationship uh, between food culture and the environment, um, that there's this paradoxical judgment which has existed since ancient times about wild foods. Um, and this is bound up in the development of agriculture and its cultural complex. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, well, yeah, as you say, I mean, foraging it's just such a wonderful way to get out um, in nature, to connect with nature, to connect with the place that you live in, the physical place and the other species that live in that place. Um, and also a way to kind of get in tune with seasonality on a very um, fine grained level um, because, you know, some of these plants, they, 
are only really in season in terms of being edible and delicious for you know a few week, a few days or a week. You have to catch that moment in time, and um, doing that is just is very satisfying. It's wonderful to be out in nature, um, even if it's just a little patch of weeds by your garden or a meadow on the edge of your your town. Um, it doesn't have to be a, a huge national park or anything like that. Um, and I think it also, um, for me at least, makes you appreciate the generosity of the land and think about our relationship to it in different ways, maybe than gardening does. Um, and I, what was interesting for me in, in doing the research for this book was to start to realize that people have had those same feelings and connections and experiences for at least a thousand years, for probably much longer. Um, and it, it's hard to know what ordinary people, you know, how ordinary people related to plants a long time ago. You know, we don't necessarily have records of what their thoughts were. And in, in a lot of cases, maybe um, eating wild plants was necessary, you know, just to feed themselves. But what we do have are these um, poems and writings in Japan from sometimes, you know, going back a thousand years that give you a little bit of window into um, how people viewed these plants. Um, so, and, and of course, most of these were written by people in the upper classes, um, by aristocrats, people living in cities, which interestingly is kind of similar to our situation. So they were, for them, um, sansai, as they're called in Japanese, wild mountain vegetables, were something special, something of a luxury, a rarity that they would go out and um, and pick maybe on a special excursion um, to give them a break from, you know, to add some excitement to their their diet. Um, and I use some of these poems in to, to open each chapter in my book. And I, if you want, I can read one of them that I really like. Is that, is that okay? Oh yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. I was, I was hoping to ask you to do that anyways. That's fantastic. Sure. So this is um, a poem from the ninth century by Emperor Koko. Um, and it's in the Hakunin issue. And it's, I'll just read the English. Um, so for you, beloved, I walk the fields in springtime, picking wild greens as snowflakes fall and fall on the sleeves of my kimono. Um, so I, I just love this poem because it's, well, first of all, it's a beautiful image, but second of all, it, it kind of shows you how um, these plants connected people to each other. Um, you can imagine going out and maybe picking, you know, warabi, bracken, fiddleheads, or, um, you know, alpine leeks, gyojaninniku, for somebody that you love because it's a very special food and, and bringing it back to them and giving it to them. Um, so it's starting to, it's kind of expressing some of the um, meanings in these foods that go beyond sustenance, that go into the emotions that are attached to them, I guess I would say. Mm -hmm. um, um, and that's actually a, a really excellent segue into your first chapter, if you don't mind. 
um, because the first chapter, which is entitled uh, Common Weeds and Woodland Wonders, the First Greens of Spring, um, you know, I noticed right away that the book is, of course, it's about food, it's about wild forage, but as you indicated with that poem, it's very much about people. Um, and in each of the chapters, uh, you, you're paying quite close attention to the people, uh, the encounters uh, that you had, um, the people you learned from, that you ate with uh, in sort of you know, putting the book together and something that I appreciated about it. Um, can we dive into this chapter here? Yeah, sure, of course. Sure. Yeah, uh, so maybe, in chapter, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I was going to say, uh, maybe I can come back later to your question of the kind of flip side of of Sansa, which is um, their use as a famine food or a, as a kind of their associations with poverty and the inability to grow rice or to grow other agricultural crops. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Um, so so here in chapter one, um, we're, we first meet uh, Hanao Gareko. Um, so can you tell us about her, uh, a little bit about where she lives um, and why wild forage is important to her um, and the time that you spent with her, the food that you ate with her? Um, because this is you know, one of the nice things about this is that it's in some ways kind of a travel log and you've, uh, again, to keep the food uh, puns going, you've sort of spiced it up with these uh, poems that are the epigraphs to the chapters. There's also illustrations, um, but there's also uh, in a couple places you've included some recipes as well. Sure, yeah, and um, yes, you've uncovered the secret of this book, which is that I am actually more interested in people than in plants. Um, I love plants. I love um, going out in nature, but I, as a writer, I tend to gravitate towards uh, people and. And you know maybe how they relate with nature. So yes, that was definitely my my focus in the book. Um, and you know, as, throughout my travels, um, I met a lot of people who I would characterize as plant people, um, who are just kind of oriented towards the plant world uh, more than most of us are. Maybe in some cases to like a, a kind of extreme degree of obsession. Uh, it almost feels like. Um, which in our current culture, just, which is so um, urban and industrial, is, is somewhat unusual. You know, most of us uh, tend to ignore plants or not necessarily, you know, really consider our relationships to them uh, on a deeper level. So, you know, Reiko-san was one of those people, definitely. Um, she lives in... Kumamoto Prefecture, which is on the island of Kyushu. Um, and she actually lives up in uh, Aso Caldera. So Aso Caldera is an ancient volcano that erupted and collapsed. And um, and then in the collapsed, you know, the, the caldera part of it up at top, there's um, a grouping of, of more recent volcanoes that are still active. Some of them are still active. And people have lived in this caldera for at least a thousand years and probably longer than that and farmed there. Uh, there's a very unique um, kind of semi-natural meadow uh, um, environment there where people have grazed cattle for a re really long time. So anyhow, she lives there. She um, She's a really interesting woman. She grew up or she, previous to moving there, she had lived in the city. And I think she worked at a bank or something like that. 
and she wanted to live in the countryside. So 20 years ago, she moved there with her husband and they grow um, organic rice, very small scale, kind of move around from house to house. They're not really settled, rooted anywhere in particular. Um, and they just love plants and they love um, geology and they know they're incredibly knowledgeable about it. They're geo guides and, and um, kind of nature guides in the area. Um, and Reiko San in particular um, has a fascination with sansai and edible wild plants. And she's basically the kind of person where, you know, if she's heard you can eat it, she wants to eat it. She wants to try eating it, um, which is a little bit like me. I, I wouldn't say I'm that, ex- that um, extreme, but I did connect with her in that, yes, I tend to be curious about, you know, you read, oh, you can eat the leaf of this plant. Well, then let's do it. Um, so in this chapter, I was kind of interested in exploring what motivates people today in the modern world to, or in modern Japan, to eat, um, to seek out these plants and eat them when they're not um, necessary in any way in terms of, you know, getting calories or feeding oneself. So in her case, I think it was just really curiosity um, and she was also very interested in the medicinal value of, of um, edible wild plants. But anyhow, um, a f- mutual friend introduced me to her and um, took me to her house for lunch. And she just cooked us this incredible feast. Um, and the main dish of which was tempura made essentially with weeds that we collected from around her rice patties. So probably a dozen or so different weeds. Um, dandelion, ground ivy, watercress, plantain, um, Japanese parsley, mugwort, field horsetail, um, things like that that are are familiar to people in many parts of the world uh, as edible weeds. Um, It may be not the most, not the more uh, glamorous (laughs) edible wild plants Mm. that you eat sometimes in Japan, but um, it's still very delicious. And... um, so basically collected this pile of leaves for us at different plants and um, set up a, a, a um, gas burner outside her barn on a little rickety table and filled it up with oil and, you know, whipped up her tempera batter right there and started <laughs> frying things um, right across the, the gravel path from her uh, gardens and farm. And we kind of sat out there and ate it as um, as she cooked. And it was just one of those wonderful meals um, where the, the setting and the experiences so much um, contribute so much to the, the flavor of what you're eating, um, you know. Yeah, I think this is this is I think where uh, you have this memorable quote about, uh, you, you know, you discover that uh, essentially, you know, tempura is this magical technique that makes anything delicious. (laughs) Yes, exactly. You can pretty much deep fry anything, throw a little uh, salt on it and, you know, it's going to taste good. The the leaf itself might taste like um, a piece of paper, (laughs) as some of them do, but um, the overall, um, you know, experience and taste is is pretty much fail-proof. so one of my favorites was actually the the dandelion buds, which I thought tasted a bit like um, uh, artichoke hearts. So I would recommend that um, to anyone 
Oh, that's interesting. So I, I, I had never tried that. We used to make um, dandelion syrup oh. and I've eaten dandelion greens. Dandelion syrup actually comes out with almost a, like a combination of fruity and vanilla. Um, huh. But yeah, I'll have to try that. Yeah, hmm. certainly dandelion is something you can find anywhere, I would say, almost anywhere in the world. And um, yeah, probably more than you would like to find it sometimes in your lawn or whatever. So um, yeah, I try to I try to make good use of it. Yeah. Um, so you continue this wild tempera journey uh, in Nagano Prefecture in this very unusual area, which I, I have to admit I was entirely ignorant of. Um, can you tell us first about the forest, this area, and also the time that you spent there uh, and the person, Koriki Kazuhiro? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I was fortunate to be able to go to a place called the Afan Woodland Trust which is outside of Kurohime in northern Nagano Prefecture. And um, as you might be able to guess from the name, it was actually founded by a Welsh man or a man born in Wales, um, Clive William Nichols, C.W. Nichols, who's quite a celebrity in Japan. He's a very, uh, he was a, he passed away in 2020, unfortunately, but he was a prolific writer. Um, you know, he, I think he was on, uh, whiskey advertisements. He has a kind of very um, memorable personality, kind of swashbuckling personality, and has had all kinds of adventures. And but he's also a conservationist. And starting in the 1980s, um, he started buying up degraded forest land in outside of Kurohime um, and restoring it, um, essentially to something resembling traditional satoyama. Um, and I guess I would define satoyama as um, rural landscapes that have been shaped by human use, um, specifically traditional agricultural practices, so that they are um, kind of semi-natural, is what was the term that people use in Japan quite a lot. Um, and in this case, it was a woodland uh, satayama. So um, basically people would harvest, um, coppice the trees and harvest fallen um, branches for making charcoal and for growing mushrooms. Um, they would use the young, um, younger branches and leaves um, as kind of a, a green manure in farm fields. So the woods were constantly being used, and as a result of that, they don't um, mature in their natural succession pattern. Instead, they stay as um, deciduous, um, ever, uh, sorry, deciduous um, um, woodlands, basically, where, you know, the, the trees are bare in the winter, so that in early spring, the forest floor is getting a lot of sunlight. And you have all these, um, you know, flowers and herbaceous plants uh, that grow in early spring, including all kinds of sansai. Um, so that is the, the type of um, environment that C.W. Nickel and his forest managers um, created on his, on his property. And I was there in spring, and it was just a beautiful place. Um, 
you know, the, the forest floor was just covered with um, butter burr, which is fuki, and ostrich ferns, um, kogomi, um, alpine leeks, gyojaniniku, daylilies, um, which is kawakanzo. Um, and so anyway, we were kind of walking through the forest and he was telling me about it. And, and we were picking these plants to make <laughs> tempera, uh, once again, tempera, which, excuse me, these days is a is a kind of iconic thing to make out of spring greens in Japan, I would say. Um, not so much historically, because tempera isn't, in the big picture of things, isn't that old of a food, um, because it requires a lot of oil, which people didn't have a long time ago um, in Japan. But today, um, it, it's kind of a typical thing to make as a special celebratory food using sansai. Um, so anyhow, um, Kogi was also very interested, like um, Reiko was, in the kind of medicinal and health-giving qualities of edible wild plants um, and their purifying role in spring. You know, people have been, tra traditionally would have been, you know, kind of cooped up in their houses eating preserved foods, not a lot of or nothing fresh if you lived in a snowy region like Nagano, um, eating only, you know, your staple foods, your grains and, and miso and pickles. Um, so in spring, to come out and to eat some of these, um, these the first sansai of spring was a, a very, like, uh, invigorating and nourishing thing to do. And um, people especially sought out some of the more bitter plants, which was interesting to me. Um, as an American, I sometimes had a hard time eating um, some of these very bitter flavors. But um, <laughs> I don't know if you you observed that when you were in Japan. But Japanese, a lot of Japanese people um, seek out those flavors. Yeah, that's it's definitely a noticeable trend. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things that, that Koriki taught me when, when we were out in the woods together or introduced me to was um, this saying that I just love. It's Shindo Fuji, um, which I translated as body and earth, one and the same. Um, it's like a traditional or a, a Buddhist saying that was taken up by proponents of the macrobiotic diet and... Um, kind of just expresses um, the importance of eating these local in-season plants and getting your body in tune with the place that you're living um, by doing that. And um, yeah, I just, I'm grateful to him for, for introducing me to that. It's, it's something I think about a lot um, because our current food system is, is so um, alienated <laughs> from that way of that way of eating. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, in your sort of introduction to the forest, uh, butterbur, uh, which come up uh, at, here at the end of your chapter as well in a third uh, personal encounter. Um, and this is with a, a Korean woman, uh, Kim Yong-hee, who is living in Japan. Um, you share her recipe for uh, what, you're, what you call butterbur packets uh, and the ways, the, the very creative ways that she's integrated uh, butterbur into her own cooking. Can you tell us about that? 
Sure, yeah. Um, so Kim Myung-hee is um, she's an artist and she's the founder of the Peace Mask product, uh, Project in Japan um, where she makes these um, masks with groups of people, these white masks um, with different groups of people um, to as kind of like a symbol of peace and cooperation. And um, she lives up in the mountains of Takahama um, in a, a little house in a kind of picturesque village. And she has, um, I guess I would say that her reason for um, eating and loving sansai and edible wild plants is that she's very interested in living the simple life, kind of reconnecting with rural culture and sustainability. Um, she has studied permaculture and um, she kind of talks to the other village women about how they traditionally used plants and, um, you know, tries to incorporate that into her, her um, life and her way of cooking, um, which is something that I connected with because I think I, I have a, a similar kind of idealization of the, you know, the simple life or the good life in some ways. Um, but because she grew up in Korea where um, edible wild plants, I think, are also a very important part of the cuisine and the culture. She puts uh, a different twist on uh, these foods than a lot of, or than most Japanese cooks. So in the case of fuki, butter burr, um, most Japanese people eat the flower buds, which emerge from the ground first very early in spring um sometimes they actually melt you may have seen this nathan where they'll melt the snow Mm -hmm. as they come out of the ground which is kind of fascinating and so they're one of the first sunset that you can pick and they're very bitter and and people will chop them up and mix them with miso to make fuki miso um and or you know sometimes put them in miso soup and then later in the season um the leaves the leaves come out and the leaf stalks are a very common um food as well so people will pick the the leaves and the leaf stalks and actually just usually discard the leaves unless they're very young um and then kind of process the leaf stalks peel them and boil them and um and then oftentimes simmer them in kind of a a very strongly flavored um soy sauce sweetened soy sauce Um, yeah i admit i was much more I was, was much fonder of the um, the buds than the leaf stalks. Yeah, yeah. They have a kind of a medicinal taste, I think. The mm-hmm. sarabuki is what it's called when they're prepared that way. And and um, it's it's kind of a bit, uh, this, uh, I would say, representative of a lot of um, country-style Japanese cooking where the, the flavors are pretty strong and <laughs> the seasoning is pretty heavy, um, mm-hmm. contrary to maybe... Uh, American images of, of Japanese food. Um, but anyhow, um, Yankee's way of preparing fuki was to take the leaves, the young leaves, and blanch them and then use them to wrap um, rice that or cooked rice that she had mixed with sesame seeds and salt and a little bit of sesame oil um, and then make these little uh, bundles out of them which were just delicious and, and very light and refreshing and kind of like the antithesis of the heavy, the heavy, sweet, salty um, thing. 
that, I think. Um, she, she never really grew to like, despite living in Japan for, you know, several decades. So, um, yeah, I was fortunate enough to make those with her, and she shared the recipe um, in the cookbook, I mean, in the book as well. Yeah, uh, and it it looks good. I'm actually uh, I'm I'm uh, hoping to get a chance to try it out myself uh, sometime. Um, I want to move us on to uh, some of the other chapters. In chapter two, uh, which is titled uh, "The Tree of Life: The Rise and Fall of the Japanese Horse Chestnut," um, you open this with this very provocative quote. In addition to you know the, the poetic uh, epigraph, but um, you write, "It seems a sad tendency of the American mindset to blithely overlook the role of certain ordinary objects in shaping our collective path. Uh, we fill our history books with benevolent kings, heroic generals." forgetting that the plow and the mosquito explain much more. So it was for me and horse chestnuts. Um, and this, there's this, you know, moment, I guess, of discovery for you, right? And, and as you put it, um, horse chestnuts have been one of the hidden ur foods of Japanese history. Um, and, and I guess, you know, this probably strikes a lot of people as, as somewhat surprising, given that, um, you know, Japan is much better known for rice and I think grains more generally, but also, you know, fish and so on and so forth. Um, and also that the, the process of rendering horse chestnuts is both, is very time and labor intensive. Um, so it's, it, I think it is surprising that they're such an important part of a lot of traditional food systems. Um, and so can you tell us about your encounter with the Japanese horse chestnut? Yeah, this was really surprising to me um, because when I was living in Japan, they didn't even register, on, you know, on my radar whatsoever. I didn't even realize it was a food that people ate, even though I did live in rural Japan and ate quite a few wild foods. Um, and I, as I was starting the research for this book, I was thinking, okay, you know, I've heard that acorns were um, historically important in Japan, you know, chestnuts. There's um, some famous archaeological sites where, where a lot of chestnuts have been found and, um, so I wanted to learn more about that and, and find out about that. And I, I asked um, a, a professor who I know uh, who studies trees and knows a lot of people. And I said, can you introduce me to someone who studies chestnuts? And he said, no, but I can introduce you to someone who studies horse chestnuts. And I said, okay, horse chestnuts? Like, what's, can you even eat those? Um, because, you know... Despite the name, horse chestnuts and chestnuts are not even remotely related to each other. Um, they're they belong to entire different families and um, as plants. And horse chestnuts, ch chestnuts you can just eat straight off the tree. I mean, they're delicious. Horse chestnuts are very high in tannins and also in saponins. Um, and it, it, it actually makes them poisonous and inedible if you were just to take a, a um, horse chestnut off the tree and eat it. First of all, you would spit it out instantly because it, it's so disgusting. Um, and second of all, if you did manage to eat enough of it, you could actually die from eating it, which is very rare because nobody ever eats that much of it. But um, anyhow, uh, as I learned, they have historically been an incredibly important food in Japan. Um, so in the Jomon era, when most of the people living on the, or all of the people living on the Japanese archipelago um, were hunters and gatherers, although they did 
you know, in some cases grow, uh, cultivate some foods as well, I think. Um, um, it, it, during that era, horse chestnuts were very important because they are dense in calories and they're large. I think they're the largest nuts that edible nuts, well, edible by some definitions that grow on, that grow in Japan. So um, people learned how to process them to get rid of the tannins and saponins, which is done by an extensive process of leaching and not just leaching with water, but first you leach them with water for, um, you know, sometimes several weeks uh, in a, in a running uh, in like a stream or a source of running water. Um, and then they have to be leached in ash in, in water mixed with ash. Um, so anyway, people learned how to do this a very long time ago. And, I, I was, as I learned about this, I was kind of wondering, like, why, why would you go through the trouble of doing that if you live in a place where there are also acorns um, that require less processing? And there are also chestnuts, you know, and other things to eat. And what I was told um, was that, you know, these nut-bearing trees don't bear as you know don't bear the same amount every year so basically like there's just what's called mast years good nuts uh, good years for nuts and bad years for nuts so for example one year the acorn trees might be very productive and the chestnut trees might have nothing and another year both might have nothing and the horse chestnuts might be incredibly productive so um in order to survive if you're depending on wild foods, you need to eat a diversity of foods. You can't depend on um, just one thing or the other, even if it's something like horse chestnuts, where uh, it takes a lot of work to to prepare it. You know, there's a payoff in terms of the security, food security that's found in diversity um, when you are depending on wild foods. So. That was kind of the situation in the Jomon era. And then in the Yayoi period, people started um, to take up agriculture and to grow rice and to grow other crops and, and much more um, commonly. Um, but as you know, much of Japan is not well suited to agriculture, especially, and that was especially the case before um, modern crop varieties were developed before crop breeding um, advanced and, and we were able to develop cold hardy um, varieties of, of grains and things like that um, because you know you have northern regions that are very cold and also you know about two-thirds of Japan is covered in mountains and hills and forest so if you live in one of those places and all of a sudden you know your culture is emphasizing um, rice, you're kind of out of luck because <laughs> you're going to have a very hard time growing enough rice to um, survive. So in places like this, especially in mountain villages, people continued to rely on horse chestnuts and other wild foods, but but notably horse chestnuts until really quite recently. I mean, into the into the 20th century, um, people were routinely harvesting and and storing and processing. Uh, the nuts, uh, and it was only, you know, as uh, food systems became more modernized, became um, 
you know, more nationalized or even international. And people weren't so entirely reliant on their local environment to feed them that people stopped um, eating them or stopped needing to eat them. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Um, yeah, and you, you talk about one of these communities uh, in this chapter, uh, Kutsuki. So can you tell us about Kutsuki? Where is it um, and why did you end up there? Also, how did you end up hang, hanging out with a bunch of geographers there and what did you learn from that experience? Sure. So Kutsuki is in Shiga Prefecture, which um, surrounds Lake Biwa, a very large freshwater lake. Um, and Kutsuki is a mountain village that's part of the city of Takashima now, but um, it's on the western side of Lake Biwa in the mountains, so kind of northeast of Kyoto. And it's um, it's it has very it, um, let's see how should I put this <laughs> deep mountains, so places that in the past were very inaccessible and and even today are kind of difficult places to live, and they're losing a lot of population. Um, and kind of fading as communities. And um, yeah, so I had the good fortune to <laughs> meet this group of geographers through various introductions who um, study the, the culture of, of eating tochi nuts, uh, Japanese horse chestnuts in Kutsuki. And they took me up there and, um, and, and introduced me to some, some local people who still prepare the nuts um, and I was able to to observe how that's done and also to meet people in uh, a citizens organization that is working to protect these tochi trees and to revive the use of the nuts because what happened was that once people stopped needing them needing these trees in order to survive um they stopped protecting them. You know, up until that point, there had been all kinds of proscriptions on cutting the trees. Um, you know, you would be severely punished if you cut down a tochi tree because they were so important for survival. Um, but once that changed, those restrictions loosened and people started these um, timber companies, timber dealers started coming in and approaching the elderly people in the villages about buying their tochi trees um, because they're they're um, greatly valued as for for wood. Essentially, people will slice them into slabs and make these kind of quote unquote um, natural looking tabletops out of them, and they'll make flooring out of them. Um, so these timber companies were coming in and um, you know paying the elderly villagers really low prices to buy the rights to their trees um going out to the forest they would um, actually take them out using helicopters they would cut the tree down just take the section of trunk they wanted kind of discard everything else and lift it out in a helicopter um and word got around about this and some people were outraged because they realized 
um, how important the trees were, not only as part of the local food culture, but um, in an environmental sense as well, because they're these riparian trees, they grow along riverbanks, and they hold the soil in place, and they're incredibly important for pollinators, and other animals live in their the holes in their trunks, and they're just a, a, a very um, important species in the forest, and people realized that and kind of banded together and started, um, you know, getting in touch with people in the prefectural government and um, with Governor Kata, who fortunately was a, was herself quite an environmental activist and, and took up their cause and managed to protect these trees um, for posterity. So it was um, quite an interesting place. Uh, for for many different reasons. Yeah, and your chapter three uh, takes us to another uh, interesting mountain village, and actually one that um, I'm somewhat more familiar with from living in in that general area, uh, which is Nishiwaga in southwest Iwate. Uh, and you take us to another one of these. Um, you sort of, over, I guess, I guess, somewhat overlooked, um, even though it is ubiquitous, uh, uh, kind of plants. Um, and, and so I want to do a couple things here, because um, this chapter focuses on uh, bracken, on warabi. Uh, and I want to, because we've talked about tochi and we're going to talk about warabi here, uh, I want to circle back around to that initial question, which I'm sorry I cut you off uh, about, which is sort of the meaning of famine foods. Um, but I also want to first, b- before we do that, talk specifically about the um, Bracken, which you somewhat memorably describe as, quote, the cockroach of the plant world, (laughs) ubiquitous, widely reviled, uh, fiddlehead devotees aside, and at the species level, nearly indestructible, which, again, is sort of an interesting contrast to to Tulchi. Um, And at the same time, uh, I think, you know, in the same way that... uh, uh, it was quite clear that you have a, an admiration and a love for, for horse chestnuts after learning about them. Um, cockroach of the plant world, I don't think was meant here uh, in any sort of uh, derogatory or defamatory way. Um, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, how, what you learned about Bracken um, and how it became so important to Nishiwaga uh, and its you know history and its current economy. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, if you look up bracken or bracken fern in most Western plant guides or on the internet, you'll probably see that they recommend that you don't eat it and that you, um, under no circumstances, eat bracken. Well, if you live in Japan, you know that people eat bracken um, <laughs> every spring. It's it's one of the most common sansai. Um, yeah, and, and a lot of it, too. In some places, quite a lot, such as in Nishiwagamachi. I mean, in the past, when you think about the quantities that people were eating year-round because they would preserve it in salt um, and just eat it instead of vegetables, you know, this, this is a pretty serious consumption levels. Um, but the reason people are recommended not to eat it in the United States is that it has certain substances in it that in you know, lab experiments have been shown to cause cancer in lab animals. Um, other experiments have shown that if you process it in the way that the Japanese do um, with, you know, alkalis and cooking, well, alkalis such as baking soda or ash, um, which is what everybody does, um, those that neutralizes some of those, those substances. 
nevertheless, you know, it's possible that there is a connection between elevated cancer rates and high consumption of warabi in some areas. So I would not go out and, you know, start making this a staple of your diet. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, I wouldn't be afraid to eat, you know, eat it a couple times in the spring. It, it would also be somewhat difficult to make warabi a real staple of the diet. I mean, it's... <laughs> It's not that kind of food, is it? Well, no. I mean, it's it's more like um, asparagus is kind of a, a what I would compare it to. In, mm-hmm. in, if it were a cultivated food, it's um, they're fiddleheads and and the stalks. You can eat the stalks as well. So it's it's a vegetable you add to. Maybe you put it on top of your soba noodles in broth, um, or you can you you know you can fry it, you can pickle it, all kinds of things. But anyhow. Um, yeah, so the interesting thing about warabi to me is that it's the perfect symbol of how a single plant, a single wild plant can symbolize both luxury and poverty. Um, and that was kind of why I went to Nishiwagamachi to in, um, kind of explore that dual role a little bit more deeply. Um, so, yeah, as you mentioned, Nishiwaga is um, a municipality in the mountains of Iwate Prefecture in northern Japan, northern Honshu. And I say mis- municipality, um, most listeners of this program will probably realize this already, but it's not a city. It's more like a county with scattered little hamlets in the mountains. So don't start imagining a city by any means. This is a very rural place. Um, and it's the type of place where sansai have traditionally been extremely important and continue to be important because of the climate. Um, they receive a lot of snow. The winters are very long. Um, there's not a lot of land to cultivate. So um, people relied on, on sansai much more heavily in these, these northern areas and in the mountains. Um, and Warabi in particular grow really well in this area. Uh, there used to be a lot of beech forests, and they and um, also if uh, Warabi, well, while they will grow anywhere, they also like more open areas. So, for example, if you've burned an area, um, or if you've um, harvested it for charcoal, or harvested the wood for charcoal, or if you've maintained it as a metal for um, thatch for thatching roofs. These are the kind of um, environments that Warabi really loves. So there was a lot of that around villages in the past, more so than now, when people use these areas, these forested areas, less intensely. Um, so I think in the past there was probably even more Warabi than there is now in in Japan. Um, but anyhow, they grow very well in Nishiwagamachi, and they were. Um, one of the main things that people ate as a green vegetable there. But beyond the fiddleheads, the rhizomes are also a really important food. And the rhizomes are kind of what I focus on in this chapter because you can extract a starch from them that is similar to corn starch. Um, and it's what is used to make warabi mochi, which is a, um, a dessert or a snack. Um, they're these kind of like... <laughs> hard to describe the texture. They're like these bouncy little balls, kind of like jelly balls um, that don't have a ton of flavor, but they have a neat texture. 
and you can find them in the grocery store now, in the convenience store, um, but they are not authentic. The ones that you will find um, easily in the store are not authentic warabi mochi. They're not made with um, bracken rhizome starch. They're made with other kinds of starch and labeled as warabi mochi. So the real warabi mochi, you will have to go to somewhere like Nishiwagamachi or Kyoto um, to a, a traditional Japanese pastry shop to find the real warabi mochi because they only, they have a shelf life of like 30 minutes and um, they, yeah, they're not suited to the mass, <laughs> the mass market. And the, this is a food whose history goes back um, at least to the 15th century, possibly to the 10th century. So people have been enjoying this as a, a luxury food in Kyoto for a very long time. Um, and a number of the sweet shops in Nishiwaga are trying to uh, make a name for themselves as producers of warabi mochi made with um, locally produced um, warabi starch. So that's kind of the luxury side of how um, bracken rhizome starch is used. Now on the flip side of that, um, this starch has also been a really important um, food for getting through famines and also not even just for famines, but it was a food that poor farmers who weren't able to grow enough um, grains to survive on would eat. Um, to, just to get through the, the year. Um, so Nishiwaga suffered from horrible famines, um, not just the major famines, the Tenmei and Temple famines, which were very bad there, but also kind of just smaller local famines on a, an almost routine basis because farming in that area was so difficult before crop, crops were developed and improved more. Um, and there's a, when I was researching this, this um, chapter, I stumbled upon this, this document called the Sawa Uchi Nendaiki, which is a yearly record of agricultural harvests. It goes back to 1673, um, really by chance. I, I had already done my reporting there or chosen to do my reporting there, um, you know, on the contemporary uses of, of this plant when I discovered this, this um, very old record, which gives just a, a very clear view of how frequently famines occurred, um, how, how hard it was to, to survive there as a farmer. And the Saladachin and Daiki mentions famine foods that people relied on, including warabi um, starch. Um, so this was not just eaten in famines. It was harvested in the fall. The, the rhizomes were dug up in the fall and kind of um, mashed up and crushed up, uh, mixed with water to separate out the starch. And then the starch was settled, allowed to settle, and it would kind of settle into different layers. Um, uh, one of the layers was like a very pure white starch called chiropana, chiropana, sorry, um, which <laughs> was actually used to make glue, a very high quality glue. Um, in Kyoto and, and other cities, it was sold out of the village as a as a source of income. And the then there was another layer that settled out when the starch was um, being made called kuropana, which had like a lot of, um, you know, kind of 
contaminating material in it, like like dirt and fibers and, and little bits of, of other things that made it less desirable. So the farmers would keep that at home to turn into um, a kind of porridge. They would mix it with acorns or immature rice or other things they had around and, um, and, and use that to survive, essentially. Um, so, I mean, as you can see, this essentially the same food had two very different uses and very different meanings. Um, and I, I guess what I was thinking about as I was researching it and as I was out there in Nishiwagamachi was that, um, you know, it's not just that you're living in the mountains and eating wild foods. No, you're living in the mountains and you're failing to survive as a farmer. And therefore you have no choice to, but to rely on wild foods or you're living in the city and you're eating wild foods because you can afford the luxury of eating them uh, as kind of seasonal treats that add interest to your diet. Um, so you can, you can see how kind of <laughs> um, heavily these foods became laden down with, with value judgments over, over time. Yeah. And, and once again, that's a, a really nice uh, transition to your next chapter, which takes us to Kyoto uh, to talk about, uh, not shiropana, but to talk about uh, bamboo. Um, so unlike these previous chapters, which have us out in the you know calderas and forests and mountain villages, uh, chapter four, The Tallest Grass in the World, Tales of Bamboo, Wild and Tame, um, takes us to Kyoto. Uh, first, we learn that you are an unrepentant, uh, repentant, excuse me, uh, and reformed bamboo thief, if you would like to fess up and talk about that. Or we could just leave that to, you know, uh, to, for people to read in the book. Um, but but uh, you specifically talk uh, a great deal about your experience uh, first at a restaurant called Uoka uh, and the proprietor Komatsu Yoshinobu. Um, and I'd love if you could uh, tell us a little bit about uh, bamboo shoots, uh, about the restaurant, and then uh, also share the menu because it's quite sort of fascinating uh, to think about the this, this well, I, I guess I guess I'll let you explain this, but this, you know, the the, the uh, idea that you could take you know a single food um, and turn that into the you know the sort of the theme uh, for an entire meal. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I love bamboo shoots. Um, this was something I came to love when I was living in Japan. I definitely did not love canned bamboo shoots when I lived in America, but um, fresh takenoko in the spring are are a really delicately flavored, um, wonderful food that I'm sure anyone living in Japan has, has had an opportunity to enjoy. And Japan has a lot of um, native species of bamboo. Uh, seven or eight um, types are, are eaten, um, and a few of those grow only in the wild. But the most common type of uh, bamboo shoot that is eaten is mosodake or mosochiku, um, which was actually um, brought to Japan from China in the 18th century as an agricultural product, and it's it's grown, cultivated in groves. So, in one sense, you know, it's a it's a little bit out of place in this book, um, but on the other hand, it's I would I would call it a um, a feral food in many cases now because a lot of these um, 
these bamboo groves have been abandoned for, for various reasons that we can talk about if you want. But um, anyhow, that so you can, you can kind of go out and, and pick them like you would pick uh, other kinds of sansai. Or you can go to Kyoto and buy them um, from these farmers who devote an incredible amount of um, love and time to growing them as tend to be as tender and delicious as humanly possible. Um, Kyotakenoko are, are a very special subcategory of Takenoko, and and one of the places they're grown is the Rakusai neighborhood, um, which is on the let's see southwest side of Kyoto. Um, so very far away from Gion and other tourist areas. And and this is where the Uoka restaurant is located um, in this, in the midst of these uh, bamboo, these bamboo groves. Um, and Uoka is a, a 150 year old restaurant that specializes in bamboo cuisine. And Komatsu-san is the fifth generation in his family to run the restaurant. And I think it was his grandfather who shifted the focus to Takenoko cuisine. And after a, a certain journey in his life of, of, you know, growing away from bamboo and then coming back to it, um, Komatsu-san is now just, he just adores bamboo. He's obsessed with it. He's one of these people um, I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation who is just like uh, 150% um, zoned into the plant world. And our relationship with a specific plant, in this case, bamboo, he wants to help um, kind of revive these um, abandoned groves and share the wonders of Takenoko with the world, essentially. So he welcomed me into his restaurant, um, not only for a meal, but behind the scenes, I got to spend um, a day with his chefs and with him going around the neighborhood purchasing uh, bamboo shoots from various farmers, visiting uh, a farm, talking to a farmer um, and seeing how he grew them. Um, and that was that was just a, a great experience. Um, one of the one of the sad things in this story to me is that one of the reasons the groves are becoming neglected is because um, people are replacing things that used to be made out of bamboo with plastic. Obviously not the edible shoots, but, you know, in Japanese culture, if people just used to make everything from bamboo, it's, um, you know, all kinds of tools and um, buildings and, and everything. And now, um, sadly, a lot of that is replaced with um, man-made materials that will be with us on our planet for, <laughs> for the next several hundred thousand years. So anyhow... Um, you know, these are were some of the issues that we talked about when, when I visited him uh, at his restaurant. So then I went, after visiting the kitchen, I went back with a couple of friends to have a meal um, at, at Wilka. And this starts by you show up um, at the restaurant. It's, it, the building is kind of surrounded by a, an earthen, persimmon-colored earthen wall and you go into the you go in, in through the gate and into this this little um, garden and you walk through the garden and a, a woman comes out in a kimono to welcome you and and bring you to your private dining room, which is of course like the size of half of my house, um, and <laughs> it has its own little private garden as well with bamboo planted in it, 
uh, and all the all the um, decorations are also bamboo themed. It, it was a little bit kitschy, um, but I, but I liked it. <laughs> I think the you know kind of just like a sign of the the level of obsession with bamboo that was going on at this restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyhow, so our meal um, started with um, something that did not have bamboo in it. It was the only course without bamboo, which was so just some tea and a little um, azuki bean jelly. Um, appetizer. So then we moved on to a kind of cold salad made from the silky leaves at the very tip of the bamboo shoot, um, which are, are really delicate and, and a nice, nice texture. And that was served with various other things like salmon roe and, and a few little beans and this and that. Um, and then the next course was uh, dengaku, so takenoko, slices of takenoko on skewers, um, so grilled on skewers with miso on top. Um, and then we moved on to a clear broth with bamboo and wakame and kinome, um, which is a kind of, wakame and kinome are both classic pairing, classic foods to pair with with bamboo. Um, kinome has a, a very distinctive smell, um, so the, you know, you'll often have like a, a leaf floating on the top of your little bowl of clear bowl of broth with bamboo in it. Um, and then after that, we had takenoko sashimi, which actually was not raw um, bamboo shoots. You can't really, you can't really eat them raw. Although I've heard that you can, that in certain parts of Japan, like just literally minutes after harvesting, people will will eat them raw. But um, in most cases, they have to be cooked because they very quickly begin to become acrid after you um, harvest them. So you have to boil them. Uh, usually they're boiled with um, komenuka, rice bran, and, um, and you know, some chili peppers, things like that, to, to make them taste a little more uh, pleasant. So anyhow, takenoko sashimi was basically like just this boiled takenoko with, um, with wasabi and, and soy sauce. And that was, in fact, one of my favorite courses in the whole meal because it was so simple and it was just um, so well done. It, it, the whole thing depended on, you know, the quality of, of the takenoko and, and their preparation. Um, but then after that, we had something called kagamini, which was a signature dish of this restaurant of um, sliced takenoko <laughs> simmered in a warm broth. And after that, we had cubes of takenoko in a creamy kinome sauce. And then after that, we had grilled takenokos, like kind of like sliced in half. It's called katachiyaki um, because you can see the shape of the bamboo shoot and topped with like a, a kind of teriyaki sauce. And then after that, we had some takenoko tempura in sesame uh, batter with sesame seeds in it, which was very delicious. And some little sandwiches made out of um sliced takenoko in place of the bread and shrimp paste in the middle. And after that, we had takenoko gohan, so rice cooked with pieces of bamboo shoot in it and miso soup and takenoko pickles. And then we finished off the meal with uh, some takenoko mousse. So as you can imagine, at the end of this meal, we were just like way past our limit of, of takenoko. And just, uh, yeah, I was wondering whether you were going to to cop to that because it <laughs> seems like as much as as much of a sort of enjoyable experience as it must have been, 
might have been a bit much. I think like around the fifth course, I was like, okay, I'm happy now. Like that was enough. And then it went on for six more courses. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and just to prove that you hadn't gotten enough, uh, in the next section of the chapter, you're, you, you leave Kyoto and you're still on uh, uh, bamboo shoots. This time it's, it's not uh, the, the cultivated uh, mosodake, but uh, wild bamboo shoots. And you're out foraging uh, in the mountains of Akita Prefecture, getting back uh, up into the, the mountains of northern Japan. Um, and, and, you know, clearly you had way too much fun, uh, in doing this, uh, cause you're up there with a bear hunter and a train conductor. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, uh, foraging for bamboo shoots with bear, bear train hunters and train conductors, uh, out in the mountains. Yeah. Okay. So this was actually a year later. So I did have a break in between my, vam- my, uh, bamboo shoots. Um, and yeah, this was just just a great experience. Um, I actually was was out there in um, Akita Prefecture in a little village called Nemorida near um, Mount Moriyoshi. Um, I was staying at a guest house to test um, sansai recipes for the book um, because uh, you know I include a bunch of recipes at the end, and I needed to be there in Japan at the right season in a place that had as many sansai as possible. So I chose Akita Prefecture because it's probably the most famous place in Japan for, for sansai. So, so it wasn't just that you needed to, a full year to reset from your meal at Uoka. <laughs> well, you know, that was part of it. But I also needed to test the recipes. And um, the guest house happened to be run by uh, Matagi, so, which is the traditional hunter is the word for traditional hunters from Northern Japan. And they often hunt bears. Um, and this man, um, Oriyama-san, it was a really interesting guy. Um, he grew up in the city and he really had no interest in, in country living. Um, his grandparents were from Nemoreda. Um, so he would go there on, in the summers and stuff, but he, he didn't like it. And he just wanted to get back to his video games and, and then he was living in Tokyo um, in 2011 when the tsunamis, uh, tsunami happened and the nuclear disaster. And he had a kind of awakening and, and he, as, as many people, I think, in Japan did at that moment. And they realized, you know, just how um, vulnerable you can be in a big city like that, where all of your food comes in from outside, um, everything in your water and, and you have um, no, no ability to, you know, go out and, and kind of fend for yourself as you might, or as people imagine they might be able to do in a, in a small village in the, in the countryside. So he took his wife and his, his baby daughter and moved them out to Nemorida, this village in the mountains of Akita Prefecture and, and, um, turned the old family house into a, a guest house. And, um, like a lot of villages in um, rural Japan, they were having problems with wild animals coming into the village because, um, you know, population is getting older, um, kind of taking care of the woodlands, less, fewer people out and about, and bears would actually be coming into the village. They would come to the cemeteries and take the food that people left for their ancestors and things like that. Um, So, uh, Oriyama-san decided, okay, I'm going to become a matagi. You know, somebody has to has to take on this role. Um, and he 
you know, essentially took on this, this new identity of a, a traditional hunter. He, you know, learned all their, tra- he's learned all their traditions and he, he goes out into the woods with, with other uh, Matagi hunters and they hunt bear. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it was quite interesting. Um, although <laughs> sadly, most of their hunting is done these days for, um, quote unquote, pest control. Uh, the prefecture asks them to kill all these nuisance bears as they see them. Um, so uh, less of it being done, actually, according to the traditional um, traditional customs and more, <laughs> more for that kind of purpose. But anyhow, as I was saying, I was staying with Oriyama-san, and he introduced me to his friend, um, Sugibuchi-san who was a train conductor, and on the weekends, he goes out and he gathers um, chishimazasa, the, uh, it's a variety of wild bamboo shoot, and he sells it and um, also eats a lot of it himself. So the three of us went out at the crack of dawn, which I guess is always when Tsuyibuchi-san goes out to the mountain, and <laughs> got ourselves some, mm-hmm. some bamboo and brought it back and, and ate it. Yeah, and so um, one thing that uh, I was you know, particularly uh, fascinated by, um, you know, throughout the book, but I just wanted to bring bring it up here that relate because it relates to this, um, is your attention. You know, we've talked about the the people um, and the food, uh, but you know, another thing that your the, the book really uh, highlights is the material culture of food. Uh, so you have all these you know sketches that are scattered throughout. Uh, implements, tools, techniques, etc. Um, and I wanted to bring this up here because you conclude that you know out of all the takenoko you sample, uh, quote the best by far were those fresh shoots we grilled over the hearth for breakfast, um, impeccably fresh, entirely uncomplicated, and above all eaten slowly and sociably uh, with Oriyama-san and Sugibuchi-san. Um, and and so these are um, you know those bring together the themes of, of food and people uh, that are a big part of the book, but you also talk about um, how they were harvested in a bamboo basket, which is illustrated um, and cooked over a, a traditional hearth on Irori, which you describe. Uh, and this was, you know, for me, um, an example of the importance, not just of the social experience of eating, but the, the importance of stuff. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, I'd like to give a shout out to Paul Pointer, my illustrator for this book. Um, who did those lovely um, sketches of, of the various tools. And um, yeah, I wanted to highlight that, I guess, because it is such an integral part of how people relate to these plants. And I, I just thought it was really lovely how um, many of the tools that people use are also made from wild plants, from forest resources like um, various types of wood and bamboo and vines. So they're part of the same whole um, connection to place and and to the plant world. Um, and they also shape how we experience food. For instance, as you mentioned with the irori, the hearth, um, you know, that meal wouldn't have been, it was what it was because of how we were doing it and where we were eating it, you know, over a charcoal, grilling the, grilling the um, bamboo shoots over a charcoal um, fire, you know, sitting around the, the irari. So um, all of that goes into how we experience the food. 
Yeah. So in, in this chapter, um, you talked about, you know, the, uh, the fact that uh, originally, you know, Mosodake, the imported uh, Chinese variety uh, was, and, 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 you know, it still is cultivated. Um, and on the other hand, you're up in the mountains, you know, with these uh, wild varieties. So you have the, the originally cultivated, sometimes still cultivated feral variety, you have the wild variety. And I think this complicates for me, at least, sort of the idea of what is a, a sansai, right? What that mm-hmm. that dichotomy between uh, the, the 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 cultivated and the wild, uh, the you know, the, in, in civilizational terms, right? The raw and the cooked to sort of keep the food metaphors going, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and I, you know, what was interesting to me was that in chapter five, you complicate that even further. Um, you you sort of hit me, you know, blindsided me here uh, because it's all about seaweed. Right, which should have been, you know, sort of obvious that that actually falls into the category of forage writ large. Um, I guess maybe it's the fact that Sansai, the first character, is Yama, you know, is mountain uh, that I just really hadn't thought about it this way. Um, but yeah, so this this chapter takes us. Uh, it's called Seasons of the Sea: A Vanishing Tradition of Wildcraft and Seaweed. Um, and in it, you you meet up with a, a local fisheries cooperative president, uh, Okamoto Akira. Uh, in uh, a small town in Shikoku called Kitadomari. Uh, And this town's a big producer of farmed uh, wakame. Um, And you note that some families are earning enough uh, to live the whole year just on the very brief harvest season. Um, So so this was something I knew nothing about uh, and was really interested in. So what's been the impact of um, aquaculture on these coastal communities, uh, on the ecosystems, um, and on Japan's food culture more generally? Yeah, um... Well, as you mentioned, um, I think a, a lot of Japanese people as well were confused when I told them that I planned to include seaweed in my book <laughs> um, because, right, sansai refers to mountain vegetables and it definitely does not, that word definitely does not include seaweed. But the English term wild edible plants does not technically include seaweed because seaweed is not a plant, it's an algae. Um, but our concept of foraged foods definitely includes seaweed. So I was working with that that um, more American um, framework, I think, um, to include it. And um, yeah, so basically in um, Kita Domari, which sits, it kind of sits on the very um, northwestern tip of Shikoku, looking out towards Honshu. Um, This was a community, they had very little farmland, very little flat land. And it was truly a, a community and continues to be where life is shaped by the the sea and um, fishing and and in the past gathering wild wild seaweeds. Um, so um, basically Okamoto san um, he he was born, I think, around 1940, and and moved to that moved back to that village um, at the end of World War II. And during the first half of his life, up until he was about 35, I think, he um, fished, you know, wild, of course, wild fish, and he gathered wild wakame and other types of of seaweed, um, uh, quite a few different varieties, um, and. Um, for him, kind of as I talked about earlier with the with the horse chestnuts, um, diversity was really important to um, making his giving him a stable livelihood. 
and also, um, you know, for food security for his community, because, um, you know, you can't count on um, getting a big harvest of wild wakame all year round or, or even every year, you know, one, one year you might have a good harvest, one year you might only have a little bit. Um, so you had to, then you would have to harvest something else, you know, and there were plenty of things in the, in the, um, you know, natural ecosystem that you could turn to. So through kind of assembling all those different foods, you would end up with a, um, you know, a way of eating throughout the year. But the problem with that is, is that when you have, um, you know, modern markets on the national scale, they, there's a demand for a, a stable supply of specific foods um, in large quantities, you know, and, and people want their wakame in their miso soup every day. <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't want to switch it up if, if there's mm-hmm. not enough. Uh, the ocean isn't providing enough that year. So um, in the 70s, families in Quito del Mar switched over to aquaculture, to farming seaweed. Um, and they, they began to just focus more and more on this one species, um, which, which is really interesting to me because, of course, that also has um, an impact on the, the local coastal ecosystem, you know. So they're replacing a lot of, of that um, diversity in the ecosystem with, with wakame, with a farmed, a farmed crop. So you're trading um, kind of security based on on that diverse ecosystem to a, a security based on um, kind of controlling the, the landscape or the, the oceanscape. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, I think seaweed aquaculture can be extremely sustainable. You know, there, there's very few inputs. There's no pollution involved. Um, and it can also prevent the overharvest of wild species, which is a problem. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you have the problem that I just talked about, where you're replacing a diverse wild ecosystem with a more simplified one. Um, and now, in many parts of Japan, um, I think it, aquaculture is a much more common way of, of obtaining seaweed than than foraging is. So this is kind of happening in other places aside from Kita del Mari. Yeah, and one of the um, places that you were able to find uh, wild seaweed consumption uh, was in Ishikawa Prefecture on the Japan Sea Coast, the sort of famous uh, Noto Peninsula area. Yeah. Uh, and you went there uh, with a seaweed scientist uh, named Ikemori Takahiko, who uh, sort of shares you know, this concern about the, the ecosystem that, that you just described, um, in, in particular, the decline of natural seaweed populations um, and the possible knock-on effects. Um, so Ikemori took you to a seafood restaurant um, run by a diver uh, named Bansho Satsuki and her daughter. Um, and so Satsuki initially, as you described, it was kind of reticent to talk about you know, wild seaweed collecting um, but by the end of the, 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 the lunch that you described there, she really uh, opened up. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, both what, what she told you and also, uh, you know, if, if you have any speculation about what it was that made her uh, sort of hesitant to, to talk about it, um, I'd really be curious to know that as well. Sure. So, yeah, the Noto Peninsula um, has probably like the richest culture of foraging and using wild seaweeds in in Japan right now. 
um, maybe after Mie Prefecture is, is my guess, but, uh, or Mie Prefecture it comes next <laughs> as another place that, that continues to, people continue to harvest a lot of wild seaweeds. Um, and I was told that on Noto, you know, there's about 200 species of seaweed and local people eat about 30 of them and sell about 10 of them. So 30 kinds of seaweed, that's, that's pretty impressive. Um, and the, the divers called AMA, um, they're free diving fisher people. Um, they don't use oxygen tanks or scuba equipment. Um, they now they wear wetsuits um, and they will dive down up to about 60 feet. Sometimes they'll they'll carry a rock with them to go down more quickly, um, and they'll gather. You know, wakame, arame is another kind of, of seaweed, abalone, sea cucumbers, sea urchins, um, things like that. Um, Ama used to be all over Japan, um, and a long time ago they used to make salt out of seaweed as well called moshio which that practice has long ago faded into into history but um anyhow uh ama came to the noto peninsula it came to the city of wajima um in the 1500s i think from kyushu and they settled there and um there's this little island called higurajima off of uh, the coast off of wajima um, which is where Satsuki-san actually grew up. Um, it's, so this is a, a rocky little island. I can't remember how far from the shore. We were able to see it from her restaurant. But you can't grow anything there. I'm, their entire livelihood was based on fishing and, and diving, um, notably for abalone and turban shells, um, and then many other kinds of seaweed and fish. Um, so kind of a, a unique, a very, I would say a very unique childhood. Um, and now Satsuki-san has a restaurant on the coast, not on the island, where she um, dives for her own seaweed that she serves. Her husband fishes. Um, her daughter also helps dive for things that they serve at the restaurant. So it's a, a great little place. Um Interestingly, as you mentioned, when I showed up there, of course she knew I was coming, you know, um, Ikemori-san had told her that I was coming, but when we got there, she's like nowhere to be found. She eventually like comes out of the restaurant, at the restaurant kitchen. Um, you know, I ask her, well, you know, like what kinds of seaweed to eat do you eat? And she's like, well, you know, I don't even really care about seaweed. All I care about is, you know, abalone. And um, gradually over the course of our conversation, you know, I learned that she is incredibly knowledgeable about foraging for wild seaweed and eats all kinds of it, heart, dives for all kinds of it. And um, yeah, I don't know I, why she was reticent like that. You know, I think maybe she was a little bit shy, um, maybe just a little bit hesitant to open up to an outsider right away about it. Um, no, but over the course of half an hour or an hour, she she definitely did. Yeah, I was kind of wondering whether it, it might actually relate back to uh, some of the questions about, um, you know, the the duality of forage, right? That, that on the one hand, it's a great luxury. And on the other hand, it's a famine food um, in a lot of cases. And, and, you know, whether that that sort of feeling that like now that we have, um, you know, 
very well established aquaculture. And as you said, you know, everybody wants their, you know, uh, uh, you know, wakame in their miso soup in the morning, right? And so you have to farm that and, you know, that like doing something other than that. I just wondered whether, you know, it, it had like a sort of stink of poverty to it or, you know, like is there that, that kind of feeling that it's uncultured in some way um, and whether you sense that that might be part of what was holding her back. You know, I don't, I don't think so because I hmm. maybe that definitely existed in the past. There definitely was a shame attached to these foods in the past um, because they signified, you know, an inability to succeed in the dominant paradigm of, of growing farming foods and especially rice, which had such great spiritual and cultural and economic importance. Um, you know, so if you couldn't do that, you were forced to eat these other things, which in reality sometimes are much more delicious and much more healthy, but yet they um, get laden down with these negative connotations um, because of the agricultural context that they are set within. Um, but I think that that is pretty much past in Japan. I, I don't know about you, but I never really encountered that, even among older people that I talked to. I think it has come so far now and and so much of the culture has begun to fade and there's general cultural general interest in reviving these foods and valuing them um and not letting them be lost that i think that that has pretty much been been wiped away the, the shame associated with them yeah i would say i mean that's very much my impression as well the, the reason i asked here specifically was because you know you you did note that uh, in, in her own lifetime, uh, Bansho-san had had, you know, her uh, family's uh, livelihood had actually depended on it, right? So it wasn't right. um, a, a matter of sort of luxury or tradition or pride or, um, you know, ecological uh, consideration. Um, but it's, it's sort of this interesting thing, because I think as you as this, you know, conversation we're having points out, I think we're probably in a bit of a transition period, right? Um, you know, swinging back and forth between these various poles of um, how people see uh, wild forage generally, you know, Sansai specifically. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, so w when I started out writing this book like this wasn't even it wasn't even really on my radar um th these other these other meanings that the food that these foods have had in the past because I was coming from despite my time in Japan I was coming from an American background and and these days in America you know it's like um wild edible plants are like trendy and you get them at a fancy restaurant and um you know maybe your relative in the countryside has picked them forever but but I think in general that, that um, you know, trendiness is, is dominant right now. Um, and I, it, was, mm -hmm. it was interesting because I went to Jimbocho to go looking for any and all books about um, Sansai that I could find it, when I was starting out my research. And I remember going into a bookstore and, and asking the guy working there, you know, show me everything you have. And he started bringing out these books about famine foods. And I didn't buy any of them. And now I'm like <laughs> hitting myself in the head because at the time I just didn't understand. I was like, well, why is he showing me books about famine foods? Like, that's not what I'm interested in. Um, mm -hmm. But that association, it, it, it is still there. 
And um, yeah, so hmm, I, I don't know. What, I, so when you say coming back around, do you mean, yeah, explain to me what well, no, I, not so much coming back around, but sort of the the, the pendulum. I, I think swings back and forth, right? Be, you know, when yeah. uh, when these things are uh, when and 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 I and I should say, as your book you know points out quite nicely, where uh, these things are uh, ha- have a history uh, or a present as famine foods, um, there is a kind of you know stigmatization that that tends to to hold on, um, and on the other hand. Uh, as your sort of adventures in Kyoto, uh, you know, are a pretty good example of, um, they can also be these great luxury items. You know, even the the same uh, warabi in Nishiwaga is both, um, you know, a, a famine food uh, and a source of warabi mochi, which is this, you know, very, um, you know, rare sort of gourmet treat in a sense. You know, as you point out, it seems good for, you know, 30 minutes or so, right? Right. Um, and I just, and I think that, you know, the, the there's a... Um, the uh, current, you know, sort of economic situation uh, in Japan sort of obviously makes the um, famine food aspect much, much smaller. But I just wondered, uh, and so, you know, so then there's a, a that sort of prestige that goes with um, tradition, that goes mm-hmm. with a sort of return to, uh, you know, thinking about uh, ecological considerations, about, you know, living uh, close to the land, et cetera. Um, and, and at the same time, I just wondered whether, you know, someone like uh, Bansho Satsuki-san, you know, for her, it, that might be where society is at large, mm-hmm. but for her personally, that you know she has a, a history with um edible seaweeds that doesn't necessarily you know quite match up with that pendulum swing uh toward right. you know prestige food right and- yeah yeah no that's an interesting point um yeah and i think you know by no means where the the ama kind of like is struggling like the the you know in some ways they did have a, a hard life i'm sure but the um abalone it would sell for very good prices, you know, so the, the turban shells and the abalone were, yes, I think what she was proud of at first and, and proud to tell me about. Um, and, and the, um, the seaweeds were more of a subsistence, a local subsistence food, um, uh, less involved in the, the economy as you, as yeah, I think that's, that's maybe what I was keying off of. Yeah. Yeah. There were, you know, so people ate, uh, eat 30 different varieties and only sell 10. So a lot of these mm-hmm. don't even make it into the, the money economy even now, which is, which is pretty interesting. Um, but I, I do think that, um, as, as we become afraid that we're losing them, you know, we, we tend to value things more and, and, uh, that, that was, is really Ikemori's, um, son's concern, I think is, is not so much that the seaweed is going away. In some cases, yes, he is studying how climate change is negatively and pollution are negatively impacting local seaweed populations. But his much greater concern, I think, is that people, um, we are losing, even on Noto, losing the custom and the tradition of um, harvesting all these these foods and um, at the same time losing the relationship that that practice creates with the local, the ocean ecosystem. Um, that's a kind of a, a very practical relationship. And for that reason, a very strong relationship. Um, and there's a lot of knowledge, a, a great deal of knowledge tied up in it, but also knowledge that is um, tied to 
I, I would say responsibility and how how the resources are used and and um, emotion towards those those plants as well. So it's not a kind of encyclopedic academic knowledge at all. It's a, it's a very different kind of knowledge that that really can't be replaced by anything but a strong culture of using those foods. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you for, uh, uh, you know, engaging with this sort of question that I had since reading the, the book. It was just something that um, struck me as, you know, uh, central to some of the the kind of paradoxes, right, of, of these forage foods. Uh, so I'm glad we had a chance to talk about that. Um, the conclusion to your book uh, it takes us uh, once again, sort of, you know, both directionally and thematically in a, in a very different direction um, up to Hokkaido, uh, where you sampled uh, Ainu foods uh, and you describe a vegetarian version of Sansai Ohao, the uh, classic Ainu soup. Um, can you tell us about some of these foods about the and about the wild ingredients that they incorporate? Sure. Yeah. So Ainu cuisine has very different flavors from um mainstream Japanese cuisine. Um, there, I would say there's a greater focus on the inherent flavor of each food, which, you know, some people might hear and say, well, wait a second, I thought Japanese food was all about, you know, honoring the ingredients and <laughs> simplicity and all of that. But in reality, um, especially when it comes to sansai and wild foods, um, a lot is really done to these foods, starting with something we didn't talk about too much, which is akunuki, where you, um, you know, you might leach foods or soak them in water with ash or baking soda to make them a little bit less bitter or boil them again with salt and baking soda, something like that. Um, so a great deal of care is taken in, in making these foods palatable um, and and I think that is something that sets um, the, the Japanese use of sansai aside from um, what's done in the United States. We, we tend to just, <laughs> you know, pick something and throw it in a pot a, a lot, a lot more. <laughs> um, but the, the Ainu um, cuisine is really, it's very simple and it's focused on appreciating the foods for what they are. So, um, oha is is um, a very important food. It's a soup that was traditionally made with um, maybe bear meat or deer meat or salmon and and wild vegetables, um, usually flavored with salt that people would get from coastal communities, trade with coastal communities if they were inland to get salt. And sometimes with fish oil, like sardine oil, I think, were the traditional flavorings. Um, and that would kind of be kept cooking over the hearth um, in, the, in the home all day. And um, yeah, so that was one of the things um, I ate. In Nibutani, which is where I was, some of the more important sansai are um, nirenso, which is faucet anemone, um, and gyojin in Niku. Alpine leeks are, are a really important food. They have a great um, fragrance. If you like garlic, if you don't like garlic, they have a horrible fragrance. Um, and another important food is o ubayuri, which is um, 
let's see, I think it's Japanese cardiocrinum is what it's called in English. Um, it's one of those foods I'd never heard of. I never heard the English name of before doing this book. Yeah, there, there's a lot of those when you get into sansai, aren't there? Yes. <laughs> um, but anyhow, they would use, the Ainu use the um, bulbs of this plant uh, to extract a starch that they will use to make dumplings with. Um, so when I visited um, some, a couple of women, I knew women who are involved in documenting traditional plant knowledge and recipes, um, made lunch for me, a, a wonderful meal with the soup, the oha soup. And then we had um, something called kosayo, which is a, is a porridge. It was a millet porridge flavored with kihara seeds. So kihara is um, the amur cork tree. They have a, a really strong, the seeds have a really strong flavor. Um, and then Turapshito, which is um, these dumplings made from the Oubayuri um, bulbs. Yeah, thank you very much. And so on that note, I, we've uh, you've been extremely generous with your time uh, and you know talking to us today, and it's been very enjoyable. Uh, we had a you know a bunch of good laughs, uh, and uh, and I, I definitely uh, learned a lot, not just from the book, but from talking to you. Uh, and I hope that uh, when you know you have uh, more adventures to share and uh, uh, more more books to, to share with us, that you'll consider coming back on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much, Nathan. It was great to talk with you and um, kind of to get some of your perspective and thought-provoking questions on um, on a lot of these issues. So thank you.